Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray, the bread of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Right now is one of the safest and most prosperous times to be alive in the history of the world. If you really think about it, there's actually very little to be ultimately concerned about, even compared to just 100 or 200 years ago. The advancement of medicine, the professional opportunities there are today, and the advancement of technology. So our age should be one of immense security and certainty for the future, but it's not. Why? Well, we live in an age of fear. And one of the reasons for this is because we live in a pluralistic age, which means there's no ultimate consensus about morality or what is the nature of goodness or justice. So we're fearful about the instability of our own personal moral commitments to be seen and reflected within the broader culture. So what do we do? We battle. We battle for control. Peter Berger, Christian sociologist, actually Lutheran sociologist, he says that we're all world builders. We're all building meaning. We're pushing the meaning of moral order, of truth, justice, and goodness as we see it and are committed to against one another like, a, like an eternal rock being pushed uphill like Sisyphus. And we're afraid. In times of fear, though, we need a better vision than if we just cultivated the perfect politically aligned world that we'd be okay We need a better vision than if we could just psychologize ourselves in the right way that everything's going to work out. We need a better vision than that. We need a biblical vision. Ultimately, what do we need? We need a vision of courage, not of fear, but of courage. Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy, shows Christians how to be courageous in times of fear. Paul has been arrested for the second time in Rome. He's nearing the end of his life. He's been sentenced to death and he's waiting in prison to be executed for his faith and allegiance to Jesus. And what he tells Timothy, who himself is a young pastor, who Timothy would be afraid of his own reputation being associated with Paul, a Roman criminal, Timothy, afraid and timid to confront the false teachers in his church and of the age, whose own body, the Bible tells us, Timothy's own body is weak. 
Paul tells Timothy not to have fear and cowardice and to shriek back, but to have courage. In this opening section of 2 Timothy, Paul shows us three ways that we as well are given a spirit, not of fear, but of courage. First, he shows us the power of courage. Second, he tells us to be courageous in love. And finally, he tells us about the wisdom that we need in courage. So first, the power of courage. Paul shows us at least two different things here. First, look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. The first thing that we see is that the power of courage is grounded in faith. Look at verse 1. Paul opens the letter in in his usual manner with his title, an apostle of Christ by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ. Notice, Paul says his being an apostle is God's will. And what Paul is also saying is that the suffering and the persecution and the hardship that he's endured is also a part of God's will. Notice that. But the the key part is this. He says, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. We see here the power of faith, Paul says, is not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of the object that our faith is in. Look, the life that is in Christ, he says. Now let me illustrate this. If you are rowing a boat in a storm... What matters as the waves are crashing down on you, as the wind is blowing every which way and and moving you around, is not your own strength, but the strength of the anchor to which you are tied. Friend, do you lack courage, ultimately, in times of fear because the anchor that you rely on is a weak anchor? Is your anchor moralism and trying to just be a good person and impress God, ultimately, with what you're doing for Him and with your works? And you keep throwing that anchor down, feeling like it's going to keep you secure, but then the storm comes and it breaks and you're in crisis because ultimately, you know, you can never actually do enough to impress God. Is your anchor your your reputation? You're aimless at sea, floating around, trying to grab onto whatever validation that you can get from whoever's going to give it to you and you're floating because it's constantly coming and going. Is your anchor self-pity? You're a perpetual victim of the storm, and somehow that makes you feel okay. See, there's countless weak anchors that we can hoist into the storm, but when the fear sets in, when the fear sets in, there's only one anchor that is strong enough to endure it. That anchor is Christ. Paul says this to Timothy as he's awaiting execution, as he's awaiting his death. And he says, Christ is the anchor in the storm because his power is ultimately sure. Jesus goes directly into the storm and he tells it to cease. He's Lord of the storm. He goes directly into the storm of death ultimately and tells death, you have no power here. There's no no power here anymore because Jesus says, I am Lord over death. You see, the power of courage is faith in the solid anchor of Christ. Second, the power of courage is to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ultimately offers life. The lens of the gospel is ultimately the opposite 
of the way that the world sees. It's the opposite of the world's lens. You see, worldly power says power is in your strength. Power is in your influence or your authority or your wealth. But a gospel lens says that power is through service. In other words, when conventional thinking says fear is your body's mechanism telling you to protect itself so hunker down and fight back, the gospel actually says fear is the mechanism to serve and to seek the welfare of others as an act of faith. You see, let me show you this. Jeremiah chapter 29. And this is while Israel is in exile in Babylon, carried into exile. It says, starting in verse 5, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, the gospel tells us the way to power is not to give in to the fear of the age or the fear of our circumstances by moving towards the power of self-preservation. But the power of the gospel is to produce life, to multiply, to build up, to seek the welfare of others first. See that? And then there you will find your welfare. You see, the power of courage looks to the welfare of others as Christ has looked to the welfare of his own people. See, Paul tells us, while we are yet sinners, it's Christ who died for the ungodly. In other words, when Christ was, as the world would see it, at his absolute weakest moment, that actually, this is a gospel lens, that's actually his moment of greatest power the moment of his greatest transformational power because through Jesus' death ultimately comes life. Through his resurrection, life now is able to go into and overcome death itself, which ultimately means that the power of the gospel can ultimately go into anywhere that's dying or decaying or dead and bring forth life. You see, the gospel lens is resurrection life. The gospel is the power to build up. The gospel is the power to bring forth life, even when it seems like there's nothing but fear and there's no hope for the future. You see, the gospel produces life at that exact moment when we see its resurrection power. See, Tolkien picks up on this in Lord of the Rings. You know the first scene um, in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf and Frodo are in Frodo's house and and Gandalf's telling Frodo about the ring's power and why it needs to be destroyed. And Frodo says something interesting to Gandalf. That's what Tolkien picks up on. Frodo says, you should have killed Gollum, Gandalf, when you had the chance. And Gandalf responds, it's very interesting if we can see it. Gandalf responds to him, he says, some that die deserve life. Can you, he's talking to Frodo, can you give that to them? If you can't, then do not be eager to deal out death in judgment. You see, what's interesting here is Tolkien picks up, Tolkien picks up on what Paul is saying here, that the power of the gospel is to to give life when it seems like something ultimately deserves death. 
we can see this power even when God's people are in exile in in Jeremiah chapter 29. And even while Paul is sitting in a hole in the ground in a dungeon awaiting his execution and his death, this is what he's saying. Do you see this? Timothy ultimately knows this and Paul reminds him of this. Notice that Timothy's Uh, lineage of faith comes not through his father and grandfather, but through who? His grandmother and his mother. What you have to see is that in this day and age, women who are not of noble descent or or married into royalty are second-class citizens. Timothy has every reason to be ashamed and afraid of his own authority because his faith comes from a line of women. And what Paul is telling him here is the power of the gospel is life in the least expected places. What the world sees as weakness, actually, Paul's saying, is the power of God to save. The gospel, we must see this, the gospel is emphatically life-giving and other-centered, which is the second thing that Paul shows us here. Number two, Paul shows us how to be courageous in love. How to be courageous in love. Look at verse seven. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, we looked at that, and love. Now, C.S. Lewis says something about this that's interesting. Lewis says that to love is courageous in and of itself. Because to love is ultimately to be vulnerable. And the willingness to ultimately be hurt is to put your heart in someone else's hands. So Lewis says, if you fear pain, don't love. Lock your heart in a box. Don't even give it to an animal. Why? Because ultimately, everyone will ultimately disappoint you. And death will eventually separate you from everything that you love. So give yourself to no one. Lock your heart away. Unless there's a better vision of love out there and that death has been dealt with. If death has been dealt with, then through it ultimately can come life because that's a gospel lens. Only then can your greatest love be realized because through death brings us into our ultimate love. This is what Paul is helping Timothy and his church see here. That to love courageously is to face our greatest suffering in life. Not with fragility, but with confidence. That ultimately suffering, even death itself, cannot separate us from our ultimate love, the love of God. So what does this ultimately free us to do? Luther says this. The gospel frees us to be servants to all. In other words, to love courageously is not to seek our own self-fulfillment and desires, but to sacrifice and to look to the interest of others, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment, because I think the way to actually understand a biblical lens, a gospel lens of love, is actually to look at Christian marriage and sex. Let me tell you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says that a husband and a wife are meant to give themselves, give their bodies to their spouse in union, in sexual union. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, but there he interprets what he means for us when he says that husbands and wives are meant to give themselves to one another as Christ gave himself for his very own bride, his people, his church. 
Do you see how the Bible's understanding of love and sex is radically different than the world's? And it's so much better. The world says, don't love because you'll be hurt. Everyone will disappoint you. Hold your heart, like Lewis says, in a box. Sex is about self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, your own gratification. Others are a means to your own end. Give your heart to no one because you'll only ever be let down. But the Bible has a radically different view of understanding love and sex. To love is to give yourself, as Paul says. Your whole self, in other words, to sacrifice yourself for another's interest. To give yourself to someone else's welfare as Christ has given himself and looked to the interest of his bride. 1 John 3.16 tells us this. By this we know love that he Jesus laid down his life for us. In other words, to love courageously, even in times of fear, to love courageously is not to close your heart off to others, but to reach out in love and sacrifice for them. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve. To seek not his own welfare, but the welfare of others. Fear tells us, however, not to love like this. Because we know that we can get hurt. We know what Lewis is saying is true. Fear tells us, don't love like that again. You might be rejected. You may not receive anything in return. You may be disappointed. But the Christian gospel shows us ultimately what true love is. It's to see that being other-centered and to look to the interest of others, and to sacrifice, to give of ourselves for them and to them is the very essence of true love because Jesus puts the ultimate display of true love in history when he comes and he dies and he lays down his life for his very own people, his bride, his church. And ultimately, that's more satisfying. To love like that is more satisfying than you ever could imagine. Than any of the world's narratives about love and sex ever could tell you. Paul says that we can endure anything that comes our way. Any suffering. Any pain. Even relational pain. Because there's one who endured the greatest suffering and pain in the ultimate display of love. By laying down his own life. By enduring the agony of the cross and the isolation and disappointment of his own relationships and friendships, Jesus still moves towards his bride, towards others. To love is courageous, because it means that you are willing to sacrifice yourself, and to do so at great cost, because there is one who gave his whole self in the ultimate act of love. Paul is saying, you've been given that same spirit, that spirit of courage, that courage to love, to reach out. One of love that moves towards others as Christ has moved towards us fully and completely in complete sacrifice. How can anybody love like that, you say? That costs way too much. You must see the one who loved like that. You see, friends, no one is loving like that in the city of Austin. No one. No one's investing in Austin. No one's building up Austin. No one's seeking the welfare of Austin. They're seeking themselves. 
The Christian gospel, however, tells us that we can move towards people. We can invest and build up in a place that seems like it's dying and decaying. Why? Not to overthrow it, but to display the ultimate act of love, which is to sacrifice for another, to seek the welfare of others, to show people the love of Christ on display, and they can ultimately see the power of the gospel that would bring forth life. Do you see how that works? That they would see the life that is in the gospel. The final way that Paul tells us to be courageous in times of fear is to see the wisdom that we need in courage, the wisdom we need to do these, to do this. The last fruit or virtue of the spirit of courage, Paul says, we have is verse 7, self-control. Now, if you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that when Paul was not a Christian, his life was basically fine. He had power, he had authority, he had influence, he had little worldly cares or troubles. But then he encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, and he becomes a Christian, and the exact opposite begins to happen to him in his life. His friends abandon him, he's persecuted constantly, his life circumstances ultimately culminate in 2 Timothy, where he's awaiting execution in Rome. Paul's a Roman citizen, by the way. His own country is going to execute him because he's been preaching, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Christ is Lord. So why does Paul say that self-control is a virtue of the spirit of courage, and why do we need wisdom in courage? What we must see here is that courage takes wisdom, meaning it takes wisdom to apply God's word to our circumstances. It takes wisdom to see reality, to see how things really are. You see, what fear does is it dirties the lens through which we look at the world. We no longer see people. We only see policies. We don't see an opportunity to witness. We only see persecution in the workplace, persecution in the world. We don't see the power of the gospel when we have a spirit of fear, but when we have a spirit of godly courage we see the power of the gospel and it allows us to step out in love towards others because sometimes we fail to see and to understand how to apply God's word to our lives and to our circumstances because that takes self-control that takes wisdom because ultimately we know this we're emotional we're afraid we can be blinded by our fear and that's what fear does And we can get caught up in the myopic vision of everything's not going to be okay. So we don't see anything other than our own emotions and our own welfare. But Paul is telling us a few things here. Paul is telling us, first, that he has more reason than anyone else to respond to his circumstances emotionally, in anger, in fear, to lash out. He did all these things right in his life. And look, ultimately, what happens to him in a jail cell, alone, awaiting his death. But Paul doesn't do that. He says, look at Christ and his gospel and the power and display and love of Jesus for us. Second, Paul is saying that we can err either in only seeing that we need power or only seeing that we need love. And what we really ultimately need is both. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Tolkien again. Why did Gandalf not take the ring of power to Mordor on his own? 
because Gandalf ultimately knew that he would have used the ring's power for his own purposes, his own welfare, to gain his own power. And he would have commanded, ultimately, in Middle-earth, order and justice in the world, the way things were supposed to be, but no one's heart would have been in it. What Gandalf knew, knows is you can't legislate morality. Why could the ring not just go back to Gollum, who loved the ring more than anything else and would never let somebody take it from him? Well, the reason is because evil would have continued to exist, ultimately, at the expense of of love, and the world would never be able to experience love's true transforming power. You see, Gandalf is ultimately a moralist who's tempted to do what is right by seeking ultimate power and commanding submission. And Gollum is a relativist seeking to love and command tolerance, tolerating evil in the world. Either and both will fail on its own, so the gap between is wisdom. The wisdom that we need in courage, which is, as Paul says, self-control, or a better way of translating that is level-headedness, sobriety. This is why we need Frodo. To see the world not as it is, but as it should be. And not to avoid the world's problems, and not to seek to command its, its blind submission and obedience without get, capturing its heart. Frodo carries the weight of the world for us so that we know that everything ultimately is going to be okay. This is what Tolkien is showing us. In other words, verse 6, Paul's saying, fan into flame, what? It's referring to Timothy's gift of ministry, but it's also referring to something else. It's referring to divine grace. Fan into flame, not your unordered emotions, not your reactivity or your moralistic power or your outrage or your desire for tolerance. That tarnishes ultimately love's true power. But fan into flame the gift of God, the spirit of power and love applied in wisdom, which is divine grace. You see, wisdom ultimately points us to the person of Christ, where God's divine grace is on display, who carries the weight of the world and gives us an easy yoke and a light burden, so that we ultimately will know that everything is going to be okay. Paul is saying, fan into flame the grace of God come to us in Christ. Fan it into your heart so that we can have not fear, but courage. The way to grow in courage is to see the one who is always courageous, who never uses his power for his own gain, and who demonstrated the ultimate act of love for us. Courage that ultimately, through Jesus' resurrection, believes that one day everything sad will become untrue. Courage that ultimately our greatest suffering will be redeemed and the scars of our bodies and our hearts will be healed because by His wounds we are healed. Courage to ultimately rest in the peace, in the peace of God through Christ that surpasses all earthly understanding and seeing that it takes a level-headed gospel lens to walk through this pilgrim life. But Christ has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of courage. What we need to see is we need to see Jesus, and we need to hear him say this, and we need to believe this, and we need to see the beauty in this. Jesus says, I have told you these things, that you, so that in me, you may have peace. 
In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Through the power of the gospel, he brings forth life where it seems like there's nothing but death. Through the courage of love, we can step out and display the love of Christ as we've been shown in him. And it takes wisdom to apply this to our lives. When we see Jesus, we see all of these perfectly. And we can take heart because we know he has overcome. And he's overcome it for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for showing us your pow- the power of the gospel. The power that those of us who trust you know because we were dead and dying and you came and you brought life into our hearts. And you, through the ultimate display of love, you showed us your power and your, your, your love. Let that propel us to seek the welfare and the interest of others, not ourselves. Not to build up our own kingdoms, but to seek the welfare of others. To build up your kingdom, O oh Lord. Would you give us the strength and the knowledge and the wisdom to know how to apply your power and your love in our lives? Lord, teach us to love and fear you and see you more and more, Lord Christ. It's his mighty name that we pray. Amen.